one thing that was really clear from that is that there's different ways that labs consider digital pathology adoption. And I think it typically falls under like the operational benefits, the financial benefits, and the clinical benefits. And uh, right now, a lot of the tools are oriented around primarily operational benefits, which resonate with some labs more than others. Uh, yeah. But I think the financial and the clinical benefits are going to be really essential for, for driving broader adoption of the tools. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, forensic science, and why it's important to take advantage of opportunities in your career. Today, I'm talking with Katie Maloney from Desi Bio. Katie recently wrote an article on collaborative partnerships in digital pathology. These partnerships range from large companies to small startups. A growing number of these companies that are outside of the field are now getting in the game. What does this outside interest mean for the future of our field? Let's explore these partnerships and trends with Katie Maloney. So you work at DesiBio. And to start with, I want to talk about that company. And can you kind of give me an overview of what it is and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. DesiBio, we're a strategy precision medicine consulting company. So we work exclusively within life sciences. We're a bit of a boutique firm. So we're pretty focused in the work that we do. That typically means that we are working within precision medicine. It's kind of the umbrella of the work that we do falls within that. Um, and the benefit for us as, as, the, as the consultants is that it, it tends to be some of the most interesting uh, topic areas within, within healthcare, in my opinion. It's, there's a lot of excitement there. There's a lot of emerging technologies where there's a need to understand them at a deeper level. We really dive deep there. We develop the content expertise on these areas and do you know market research and strategy consulting for the players in the space. Um, in addition to the consulting work that we do, we also have a data analytics arm as well as a, a venture like DesiBio Ventures Fund that we raised in the past year or so. This allows us to participate in the market, not just be advisors to the market, which is something that we kind of pride ourselves in. And we find, you know, we think is a little bit differentiating as consultants, where oftentimes you're coming in from the outside, giving the advice and then stepping away, whereas we're kind of being able to work across the precision medicine ecosystem and, you know, put our money where our mouth is to some extent. Okay. I can see that. Like, like you said, participating in the market, that probably gives you a better perspective of what's happening within that market than I would, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the consulting is definitely the vast majority of what we do. And so it's probably still 80% of our activities in the consulting arm and the analytics is the majority of the remainder, but we raised a fund in the last year or so. And, you know, it's a pretty small fund, but it allows us to be market participants at that point. So the work that we do broadly within DesiBio Consulting and, and DesiBio kind of <laughs> the broader DesiBio umbrella is typically, I mean, diagnostics, research tools, and biopharma. Most of the venture investments to date, all of them to date, I believe, have been more in the research tools piece of that. But there is, you know, that's could change in the future. Uh, the investments tend to be on the smaller side, but are um, kind of, it allows us to come on as strategic advisors to the people that we work with. Okay, that's fascinating. I, I was looking at the DesiBio website, and it says that DesiBio aims to accelerate innovation in precision medicine, which 
sounds amazing. W- what does that kind of slogan or, or motto, what, what does that mean to you? I think that precision medicine is, as I mentioned already, it's a emerging space. There, It's a place where the technology and the therapeutics are really intertwined. You can't have one without the other. But oftentimes, I think that the diagnostics piece of that is underappreciated in that equation. And a lot of times, all of the attention is put on the the therapeutics, the novel drugs, what's coming out there, when a lot of times these can't happen without knowing what biomarkers the patient has or being able to get those results in a timely manner and communicate them to the patients. I think that the work that we do with the diagnostics and research companies is a vital piece of accelerating that innovation there and, and not just focusing at it from the therapeutic angle, but coming at it from the, you know, equally, if not more, it depends who you ask, (laughs) important diagnostic angle. I think people that are, have been on or listened to this podcast, it's going to be probably in, in, you know, diagnostics is more important, but that that might be. I mean, I would, you know, personally, that's, that's the place that I work in and, and would agree with Mm -hmm. that. I think that we've seen how important it is and, and the greatest drug only matters if you can get it to the right patient. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, totally. Okay. Now you've been with Desi Bio since 2018. So tell me about that. Like how did, how did that happen? And then I want to get into kind of what your role is now. Yeah, absolutely. So I came to Desi Bio out of school. I was interested in going into medicine, but didn't know ultimately which route to take. And I think the thing that really appealed to me about consulting is that it's very fast paced, which I really enjoy. The, our projects are you know a couple of weeks to a couple of months long. And so you are learning about new topic areas and getting to dive really deep and speak to the experts on these topics all of the time, which I think you can appreciate with what you're doing on this podcast. And yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so now I'm a a principal. So I'm uh, running project teams, developing content expertise in some of the areas such as digital pathology that I'm really excited about and and enjoy working in. And it's been a really wonderful experience in in the time I've been at Desi Bio. I like the idea of, uh, like you were saying, that you, you you can dive deep into topic because the idea of learning new things and having the people in the past have talked about on, on this podcast about lifelong learning. And it sounds like that's what you've got there because you're constantly learning new things, which I think not only keeps things interesting, but it's, it's kind of exciting too, especially with all the things that are happening now in, in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I think that within any job that you're doing that is going to be fast paced and you're exposed to different technologies, constant desire, willingness to learn is a vital piece of that. You can't do the job without an openness to speaking to the experts, acknowledging that you're not always the expert on that topic, finding the people that are talking to all of them until you are, you know, just about as knowledgeable on the terminology and the key considerations and the drivers and trends as anyone else is. And I think that the kind of additional angle within precision medicine is that there's always new technology coming out. So even if you are the leading expert on a topic, if you stop learning, you're going to be quickly outpaced within you know a couple months or a couple years as there's novel genomics or proteomic or transcriptomic or multiomic technologies you know and beyond that are impacting 
ultimately downstream patient care. And, you know, it's true when you are thinking about the earliest research side of things through to translational, through to clinical diagnostics, there's talk technologies that are changing how, how research is being done, how patients are being cared for. And so you have to be, have a willingness to continue to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I, I love that, that kind of attitude. You were telling me that you've got work-wise anyways, you've got something exciting coming up shortly, actually. Can you, can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So next week, I have the very exciting opportunity. I'm moving to London, actually, to open up an office for DesiBio there. We have done work globally for kind of as long as DesiBio has been around, but our offices have all been US-based. We have our headquarters is in Los Angeles, where I have always worked out of, as well as an office in New York and, and San Francisco. But for the first time, we're going to have a kind of footprint, lasting permanent footprint on the ground across the <laughs> across the Atlantic Ocean over in the UK. So really excited about that. There's a really great community within precision medicine and life sciences over in London and, of course, like the surrounding areas and Europe more broadly. So I think it's a really great opportunity for myself, of course, but also for DesiBio to continue to strengthen uh, our, our relationships there, our understanding there. There's a lot of nuances within the European market that are can't be ignored. You know, the regulatory considerations are different. The reimbursement structure, the payer systems are all very different with this, you know, willingness to decentralize tests or the, you know, what if there is even a CDX, you know, like what that terminology means is very different between the US and the EU. And so really excited to be there full time and dive deeper into those, those geographic specific considerations, as well as kind of marrying that with what I already have learned in the US. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. Have you been over there before? I have. We Our company is very <laughs> pro-travel. So we had oh, a good. house in London for some of the team two summers ago, I believe. And then I've spent some time there in the past summer. And the, we have another house there again this summer so that the team can come over and work there for a little bit of time when it makes sense for, for casework. And so there's mm -hmm. definitely for, been there for work as well as pleasure and love London, love the city, and I'm, I'm very excited to be living there. Yeah, that's great. That sounds like a like an awesome opportunity for you. So that's 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 cool. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm sure it'll be challenging too, but I think it's mm -hmm. definitely not not an opportunity that I could pass up. Yeah, and and there again, you're gonna be learning new things. Exactly yeah. on a different yeah. axis, if you will. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you is you recently published an article about partnership trends in digital pathology. And of course, I'll, I'll link to the article in the show notes for this episode. But how did, if, let's step back from the article first. How did digital pathology become of interest to you? So I've worked across many emerging technology areas in my time at DesiBio. We do a lot of work in uh, liquid biopsy, like MRD and early cancer detection and, you know, proteomic sequencing technology, um, which are all really exciting to work in. And, and I had the opportunity to do some work within the digital pathology space and really uh, do deep dives into understanding the, the digital pathology ecosystem. And I think what really appealed to me about digital pathology is that it's more complex than it can maybe look on the surface and that it's very 
actively changing on a day-to-day basis. So I really appreciated understanding primarily the relationship between the different pieces that are essential to make digital pathology work within a lab. Like you need the hardware, you need the software, the AI adds this value, the data piece is is unavoidable. All of these pieces have to come together. And so there's a lot of uh, different stakeholders. There's there's the digital pathology company stakeholders on on each of those product types, but there's also the biopharma stakeholders and the clinical stakeholders and the um, you know big tech and and so I think there's a lot of need for consolidation or, or availability of the data to allow people to make decisions in this space. And so um, I saw a lot of opportunity to answer some questions that I think hadn't been answered maybe at the time. And I think the technology just resonated as well. So it kind of came together. All right. So let's dive into the article a little bit more then. So you're tracking partnerships in digital pathology. Why why is this important to track partnerships? Yeah. I, I think that, as I just mentioned, the digital pathology ecosystem is very complex. There's a lot of different types of products, different types of companies, different types of stakeholders and expertise that have to come together to make a digital pathology workflow work. There, you, it can be done with one piece or two, or you know, but it's it, it's it's at its best, it's at its most powerful and most compelling and most game changing when these pieces work seamlessly together. There aren't a lot of companies today that have deep expertise across all of the necessary areas that, um, you know, can build really great hardware and also have really great software and also the best in class AI developing team across all of the different potential applications for which there's needs. It just became clear. And and if you follow the space at all, which I'm sure you do, there's constantly (laughs) press releases and news articles and announcements about new partnerships. And so it definitely seemed like something that was not letting up anytime soon. And it's been great to see how all of these different groups are working together to continue to push forward the, um, what I would think of as the inevitability of digital pathology. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, when you originally posted this on, Dan, I think I said something about it's, I like the collaborative aspect of this because I I think that's, that's important. Yeah, I think more so even than in a lot of the other areas that we do work within, with within DesiBio, the the collaboration is necessitated in, in digital pathology. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. And so you see these groups working together. I think it's there's a couple of reasons for it, some of which I already just touched on in the complexity of the space. There's also not necessarily clear, like one or two clear market leaders in most of these segments. And so in order to access the uh, the labs, you have to be working across the ecosystem and just in order to kind of be able to meet the labs where they're at with the tools that they have and the interests that they have and the relationships and the needs that they have. And so we've seen the collaborations, I think, really pay off. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I can understand that. The, the, one question that you raise in the article, and, and I found this really intriguing, you say, how do these partnerships actually affect the status of digital pathology adoption? Now, based on the data that you have and that you've, that you've studied, is there an answer to that question? Yeah, I think the reason I asked that question in the first place in the article is because I don't think the graphic alone tells the whole story. It's a really pretty graphic for those of you in my my biased opinion, for those of you who haven't seen it. It's a ton of companies. They're very, very interconnected. The bubble size corresponds with the number of partnerships. But I've had a few people ask me, you know, okay, I get this. Does the bubble size correspond with impact? Is that a a takeaway I I can, you know, 
take away from this article. And I don't think that that's necessarily true because a company can have a really long list of partners and they can honestly not always be that meaningful. Or a company can have a few like really important, deep, integrated partnerships that are game-changing for the customers that are using them. Yeah, I, I don't think that just because a, cu- a company has a ton of partnerships means that they're better positioned. I think it's a great sign that they're aware of the of the needs of the market and are, are actively going after those partnerships. But because of that, I think that it is really hard to tell the direct impact that any individual partnership it has on adoption because th- that data is not always shared. There definitely are partnerships where you see examples. There's, you know, they come out in the press release or you see a, a abstract at a conference where you see a customer, a real customer that's benefiting from the integration of these companies. But, you know, I'm sure that just the same, there's integrations out there which had a press release and then there's no one maybe that's actually using that combination of players in practice. And so I think that it, it is a hard question to to answer. I think when we take a step back and look at the the partnership trends overall, there is definitely evidence that these partnerships are enabling further adoption. And I think that's definitely inarguable at, at, a, at a higher level, that the partnerships are essential for this integration and, and interoperability that makes digital pathology feasible for the, the clinical lab and, and for the research lab. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe it's too early in the process still. I mean, as these partnerships become more you know, this is a trend that that it seems like from what you've seen, it keeps going up. And as that happens, maybe it, it will start to have an impact more and more as time goes on. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I think, well, I, I touch on it a little bit in the article and I'd be happy to touch on it more, but we see that the types of partnerships changing. We see the who's involved in those partnerships changing. Um, and it's definitely further evidence for both how vital these partnerships are, but also how they are leading over time. Some of these integration partnerships over time are leading to maybe option or to you know research studies or algorithm development, where I think of it as somewhat as a stepwise process, where first you have to get all the pieces in place. Like you have to have the tools that communicate with each other and the files that can transfer between them. You have to have all this. And then once you do that, you can you're you can make it a lot easier for labs to adopt the tools. And um, that is continuing to happen. Okay. Well since you mentioned the integration partnerships, let's let's look at that because and you kind of touched on this already, but one of the one of the things that's been a hurdle for digital pathology adoption has been the lack of interoperability, at least at the beginning. It's a, it's a little bit better now, but do you, do you think that's one thing that is driving these integration partnerships? Yeah, absolutely. I think that from the beginning, file type interoperability and software hardware interoperability was a big issue. I think yep. that this is something that has been talked about for a number of years and a lot of really good work has been done to address this. You see a lot yeah. of IMSs are file type agnostic and a lot of scanners will work with just about any IMS that you want to use. And, and algorithms can be used on a lot of different, the, the files types that you need for that algorithm are you know supported by the different IMS options that you 
you have on the market. However, I think that what we're maybe seeing a bit more of is a, is a transition from interoperability, where you can make it work, to integration, where it's really easy to make it work. And I think we're seeing more of like the partnerships between, for example, an IMS and an algorithm where you can access that algorithm within the, the context of that IMS. You don't have to leave the, the leave the program and go and like make sure you have the file and pull it in. And sure, it, it works. Like the fire types are interoperable, but, they, but they're not necessarily integrated. And I think the integration is really huge depending on the lab type and kind of the willingness of the team to sit there and, and jump around and use all of these different programs. The fewer clicks that are necessary, the better, right? And so if you can kind of access these algorithms natively within these tools and have it all within one interface, that's really meaningful. And I think we've seen a lot more of those partnerships where it's not just like, yeah, you can use both of these tools, the files will work, to we make it really easy for you to use both of these tools within your workflow. That's an important distinction. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't really thought about it that way. But just the fact that yeah, making it as easy as possible to work together. I can see how that would be really important and probably drive digital pathology adoption even more. It depends on the customer type, right? So if you're thinking about the leading AMCs that are super research oriented and kind of are always on the you know, cutting edge of the most, you know, best in class technologies, there's a lot of willingness to work across programs and have a lot of expertise in house that allows you to try out this software with this algorithm, with this scanner, and we have a couple different of those and, and we have a team dedicated to it and we can make it work. And that's great. And I think we've seen a lot of those groups investing in digital pathology, even, you know, prior to a lot of these partnerships, but in, you know, kind of maybe, institutions that don't have that dedicated team or have one person really championing digital pathology, but the institution as a whole hasn't bought in yet, the uh, the, the decision-making criteria or the uh, the tolerance for the, the, the difficulty decreases. And so you need solutions where it's as end-to-end -end as possible, where there's it's as integrated as possible. And you need to be able to do that without limiting the access to the best-in-class technologies. So I think we haven't necessarily seen, um, the, you know, one company come out and really run the show and say, we've got the scanner, we've got the IMS, we have every algorithm you need. And that's for some of the reasons I mentioned previously, it's a lot of different expertise that's needed for that. And so because of that, you really need these partnerships to make sure that the tools can be adopted. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Katie Maloney. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes.
Now for the rest of my conversation with Katie Maloney on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay. Something else you say in the article, you say partnership is a key tactic to drive brand awareness, address unmet customer needs, and facilitate research and adoption. And you've kind of, we're just talking about a few of these things. And I can see how this would work just with, you've got two companies working together, you've got expanded resources and things like that, especially if one of them is a giant company, and we'll get into that a little bit later, you know, and maybe the other one's a smaller startup or something like that. So it's advantageous for probably for both of them. Can you talk about these, this kind of thing? And like, are there other ways that these sort of partnerships accomplish those goals? Yeah, I think that, of course, the resources is key. I think bringing together the disparate expertise is really key as well, because it's the, the, the expertise differs depending on what segment or aspect of the digipathology workflow you're thinking of. I think it's also important to keep in mind that these partnerships aren't just digital pathology company, digital pathology company, working together and integrating their technologies. There's a lot of other, there's healthcare organizations, there's biopharma, there's the LIS companies, the EMR companies, the, you know, the reference labs, all of these different players are partnering within the digital pathology ecosystem. And this is because, it, you know, the reasoning might differ a little bit depending on the, the customer type you're talking or the partner type that you're talking about. But for example, for the HCOs, the data access is vital for algorithm development. It's one of the key things that's impacting how quickly and how well you can develop an algorithm for a specific patient population. And so making sure that you have access to good quality data that's annotated in the right way, that you can train the algorithm, but also not necessarily just limited to one institution or one pathologist, because you need to be able to account when you train that algorithm for all of the potential variability in the commercial deployment of that algorithm. And so because of that, the, the partnerships with the HCOs are essential. And for, that's one reason they, they provide a lot of value to the ecosystem a number of ways. On the pharma side of things, it's one of the things that I'm really excited about is you know how they're getting involved and the the muscle that they bring to the table when you're thinking about including this and in maybe a, a CDX decision-making process in the future where it's tied to a therapeutic. And although that's definitely not something that's around right now, um, those partnerships are key for getting the, the infrastructure in place that will be required for that in the future. Talking about bringing muscle to the table, and I think you mentioned in the article, like even Microsoft and Amazon are getting involved too, which that's that's some big muscle right there and i think the aspect of having non pathology companies getting involved in digital pathology partnerships is important not only for those resources but just for you know those of us in the pathology field like we always say like we're the unknown unknown field in medicine yeah. or something of that effect and i think having these giant companies involved will just bring more awareness to the field in general which would help things ad advance quicker. Yeah, I think that it's great to bring the awareness to the table that that these companies have or just the the excitement that there often is around the investments that these types of companies make. I yeah. think that we're seeing that outside of what would maybe strictly be thought of as digital pathology companies or even pathology companies, there's a lot of value that these companies are recognizing within the pathology space. And digital pathology is one way for them to access that and 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 kind of realize that potential value. I think both 
we see it on the clinical side of things. If this is something additional that I can offer to my patients, if this, you know, streamlines workflows, but also from a data side of things, like the real world data that is locked within those slides when they're not digitized, sitting somewhere archived versus once they're digitized and you can use all that data to train algorithms that are maybe patients you have access to. Um, I think that's really meaningful. I think as, as long as the decision-making is still remains rooted in the pathology side of it and the pathologists. And it's not the tech companies making decisions around what should be happening in digital pathology. It's a really great thing to see. And I think so far that, you know, it still is definitely being led by the pathology companies, but just ensuring that the pathologists remain part of that conversation is essential, of course. You say in the article that the data suggests that digital pathology may be reaching an inflection point and potentially the first of many. Now, talk about this inflection point. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think I I maybe touched on it a little bit, but we, in addition to just tracking the number of partnerships and who's partnering together, I've been tracking the types of partnerships. And this is actually the, I think, third iteration of this partnership analysis that I've done. And so we have data collected for over the past, like really good data over the past three to four years and have been kind of actively live collecting it over the past 18 months to two years. We've seen since 2019-ish that to 2023, you know, the most recent data, that the types of partnerships have been changing. And so whereas originally, as we discussed, the partnerships that were really oriented around integration, interoperability, were far and away, if you look at it, like they're like 90% of the partnerships that are being announced in the digital pathology space, because you have to get that infrastructure in place without having those right. types of partnerships, you, it, you're kind of at a non-starting point. And so that, you know, makes a lot of sense these workflows are getting ironed out. These companies are learning how to work together. They're learning what customers want, listening to the pathologists and and addressing those unmet needs through these partnerships. But what we've seen over in 2023, for the first time, there was, I think, I believe it's almost the exact same number, if not slightly higher number of partnerships that are oriented around clinical or research adoption or implementation. So not just, yes, digital company, digital pathology company A is working with digital pathology company B to make sure this workflow works, which is great. But now healthcare organization A is actually using that technology in their um, clinical practice or to support their research efforts. Okay. And I think that's a really meaningful change. And and the, 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 it really is, when you look at the raw data, a bit of an inflection point where it goes from being pretty steadily, there's not a lot of those types of partnerships, to being equal to the number of uh, integration and interoperability partnerships. And so I think that's, that's great to see. You know, of course, there's, you know, caveat it with it depends on what people are calling partnerships too. So I don't really capture customer relationships in this analysis. And so there's a lot of that as well, which is not captured here. But I think we're seeing, it's great to see more of the public commitment to the adoption of digital pathology. But the reason I think it's the first of many is because we're still by no means at this fully digitized world where, yep, we've addressed all the unmet needs. People are just going to kind of continue gradually adopting from here on out. There's definitely 
a, a significant need for um, a continued addressing of the the pain points that still are facing the pathologists. And and yeah. something else I was you know talking touching on is that what it takes, what the needs are, differ institution by institution. And so maybe the needs have been met for certain institutions, or, or mostly not met enough that you can kind of justify bringing it in house. But there's still a lot of community hospitals that just cannot justify the capital expenditure that it takes to bring in a scanner. And so there's other pieces outside of the partnerships that are needed. There's reimbursement that needs to come online. We, I think just yesterday or two days ago, saw the uh, Medicare, Medicare announce a payment rate for um, a digital pathology. Oh yeah. It was algorithm. Yeah, yeah, for prostate cancer through yeah, in, in their CLIA lab, which mm-hmm. is great, but there's still no reimbursement for scanning. And so if you mm-hmm. are a clinical lab that wants to adopt this, you're not getting paid for any of this additional work right now. And there's other ways that it's justified. It's a, you know, a complicated equation for whether or not it makes sense, but it is complicated. And so there's still definitely a lot of work that needs to be done. So I think we'll continue to see as these levers are pulled, additional adoption points. And maybe it's, you know, the first time that we see some reimbursement for scanning, that's going to be a push because it now starts to be a money-making endeavor. And then maybe when there's like a CDX would be another huge lever that could be pulled because it turns some of these algorithms from nice to have tools that maybe operationalize or expedite something that can be done manually to something that is really beginning to necessitate the use of digital pathology rather than it being an optional tool in your toolbox. There are, of course, always these tools are going to be, you know, alongside the pathologist, but I think that it is how they're going to be incorporated into the pathologist's workflow is going to continue to shift and and that'll um, result in (laughs) continued inflection points. And maybe, you know, inflection point isn't the, the, the best word there, but I think that we just see these leaps as, as some Mm -hmm. of these pain points are addressed. Sure. Sure. No, that makes sense. I can understand that. So other than being invited on this podcast to talk about your article, what sort of feedback have you received uh, about this? Yeah, as I mentioned, this is, I think, the third or fourth update I've posted on Mm -hmm. the partnership analysis. And the feedback is honestly always really great on it. It's, um, I think, the, you know, stakeholders within digital pathology are Mm -hmm. interested to understand who is working with who and which partnerships are, are meaningful and how does their company stack up against some of the other companies that are going after the same applications or the same customers that they're going after? And I think it's such a dynamic space that even in as little as six months, you can see bubbles grow. New companies have the most partnerships. Links exist where there weren't before. Completely new companies popping up with a number of partnerships. It's been very great feedback that I've I've received just from people that are interested in following that in this kind of rapidly changing timescale. It's great to see how much interest there is. And I think every time there is a little bit more interest, which, you know, without looking too much into it, I think is promising for digital pathology as a whole, because there's a lot of different types of stakeholders. There is, whereas, you know, with the first 
iteration, I think it was primarily other digital pathology stakeholders, like other people that are working within digital pathology that, of course, they care because this is what they're putting all of their work into, into more of, you know, biopharma stakeholders that are interested, investors that are maybe don't know a ton about the pathology or digital pathology space that want to learn more about it, or, you know, other companies that don't have a lot of pathology experience that just kind of want to get a sense of what's going on in digital pathology. What's the big deal there? Um, So that's been great to see. Yeah, I can see that. And it, it, that's got to be kind of rewarding for you too. Like, I'm sure you're sitting there like, hmm, I'm, I'm probably onto something here if people are so interested in this. Well, I mean, I think that for me, what that would be the most exciting or what is the most exciting is when the press releases come out with the, one of those levers pulled, right? So seeing the first reimbursement decision or, you know, an early reimbursement decision or seeing a new regulatory approval or seeing someone that has adopted and is going full, like all in on digital pathology. You know, of course, I have, you know, no impact on that, but it's great to see that the momentum is is growing in digital pathology. And, and it makes me feel fortunate to be, um, following the space and and producing content in the space in a time that is, you know, very exciting. And the momentum definitely feels like it's growing in digital pathology as compared to a couple years ago when I was first exploring the, 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 the world of digital pathology. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Okay, I want to kind of end with sort of a look toward the future. Because, you know, people listening, it's, it's like, okay, I know about digital pathology, or maybe I'm learning about digital pathology. And it's like, how is this going to affect my job and my future? Especially when you're talking about things like AI. And, you know, people want to know, will I, will I still have a job? Do I have to learn new things? You know, what do I have to do to still be part of the digital pathology world? And you end your article with some, some sort of speculative questions about what the future might bring. And I think you answered a few of them already. You're talking about the levers needing to be pulled, things like reimbursement and pharma companies getting involved in CDX and like that. So I wonder if we can, can, and this is just speculation. This is just kind of your opinion and mine. Like, what do you think the future is going to hold for digital pathology? Yeah. I mean, I think to your first question around the, you know, pathologist that's wondering, what it is that they need to do as as the landscape continues to change. I think uh, the beauty of it is that I definitely do not pretend to know or you know tell any any pathologist what what role it is that they play. And I think that's one of the great things that I is what I am able to do in the role that I have is link the pathologist perspective with the digital pathology company perspective. So for a lot of the projects that we're doing, we're conducting, you know, 20, 50, 100 interviews with with pathologists and lab directors to understand what do you need out of digital pathology? How does this help you? How does this not help you? What are the pain points? If, you know, if you're using a scanner, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Have you ever thought about using an algorithm? Why? Why not? What do you want to need? And so I think that that like shows that the digital pathology companies understand that the pathologist perspective is vital in developing these tools. And I think that it's going to be the tools are, I, I think I mentioned before, I think that digital pathology is inevitable, but the pathologists play an important role in shaping what that's going to look like. And as long as there's this continued learning, like we also touched on earlier, it's going to um, open the wider what it is that pathologists are able to do with some of these tools, which I think will be really exciting to see what that looks like. 
I think for the future of digital pathology, there's definitely still a lot of pain points that need to be addressed. I think there's a reason yep. that we don't see 60, 70, 80% of labs that are fully digitized. I think that in the digitization we do see, it's pretty piecemeal a lot of the times. There's maybe a scanner, it's maybe variably used, maybe there's IMS and they're figuring out how to use it, or some pathologists use it and some don't. So I think making sure that the tools are meeting the needs of the lab is essential. I think that we're going to see more kind of like broader integration across the pathology labs. So not just making sure that the scanner works with the IMS, works with the algorithms, but that workflow works smoothly with the stainers, with the LIS, with the you know EHR, with all of these different pieces that are essential within the within the pathology lab. Um, and I think once some of those pain points are addressed and some of the financial incentives come online, we'll see continued growth and utilization and adoption of these tools. I think that maybe one last thing is we have, I should have mentioned this earlier, but uh, we have a, a digital and computational pathology report that we published in May of 2023 and okay. actually included some of this partnership analysis in that report. And there we've spent a lot of time looking at the trends in the space, what we expect to see. And, and that's definitely all formed based on conversations with pathologists, biopharma, lab directors, you know, understanding what it is that they need and what that is that they expect. And the thing, one thing that was really clear from that is that there's different ways that labs consider digital pathology adoption. And I think it typically falls under like the operational benefits, the financial benefits, and the clinical benefits. And uh, right now, a lot of the tools are oriented around primarily operational benefits, which resonate with some labs more than others. Uh, yeah. But I think the financial and the clinical benefits are going to be really essential for, for driving broader adoption of the tools. Okay. Okay, I like that. That sounds like the potential is huge, and it sounds like the future, you know, with some of the hurdles being kind of overcome, the future is going to be bright for digital pathology. Yeah, I, th I think the future is bright. I think that, of course, you know, it's easy to say that we'd like a faster adoption of these tools, right? Which I'm, I'm I think of there course. are definitely benefits of. But at the same time, I think it's important that the tools. It it, the, it takes the time it needs to make sure the tools are what the labs need, what the pathologists need, what the what biopharma needs when they're working with it, whatever it is. And so, you know, my hope is that adoption accelerates and that we see a lot more of it coming online in the near term, but making sure that those uh, tools are are definitely meeting the needs of the pathologists in in all that in the, that situation. Love it. That's great. Katie, this has been a super interesting conversation. I appreciate your time. I appreciate learning more about you and to and digging into this article a little bit more. And I hope everyone gets an opportunity to read it. Uh, like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. So Katie Maloney, thank you very much. Great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Fred Bozeman as we talk about the need for the younger generation of pathologists to get involved in the changing and dynamic field of pathology. But I think it's very important that the, the younger, younger generation uh, uh, of, of pathologists, as early as possible, gets involved in uh, organizational matter uh, at, the, in, at the department level, but also at the level of, of your the professional societies. If you look at the, uh, the, the demographics of 
para falar disto em inglês sobre o Andalus, que é uma exposição ainda de mais de 50% do is below the age of 45, whereas uh, most of the, the the members of committees uh, tend to be much older, and I think it's important that the younger age bracket is well represented in, in these structures uh, because they. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Fred Bozeman in episode 121. All right, big thanks to Katie Maloney, and especially for sharing two collaborative areas that can impact the future of our field. Her article highlights the importance of collaboration as a way to advance usage of digital pathology. At the beginning, everyone wanted to be first and get as much of the market as they could. And this is understandable, but it led to problems too. Some equipment wasn't compatible with equipment from other companies and image formats were different depending on what you used. Now with this collaborative mindset, we're seeing more interoperability and this makes things more accessible. Another helpful insight is how companies outside of pathology are getting involved. The article mentions Amazon and Microsoft. Because of the massive resources of these companies, this could mean much greater exposure for pathology as a whole. It could also lead to a greater role for pathologists in the future of cancer treatment with things like companion diagnostics. And this could really advance rapid growth in our field. As I mentioned during the interview, I'll have a link in the show notes to Katie's article, and I really encourage you to check that out for yourself. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.